we gather to worship, I think I'll say a couple of things about the sermon that may not be. The parable that we're going to hear today about the wedding banquet, I think, is just very difficult to hear right now in the world that we live in. I'm reminded of a rather petulant 20-something-year-old Bart person one time saying to a monk, the Bible sure is violent. And Brother Odolo said to me, the world is violent. At the same time, I don't think that means we always have to pitch headlong every time into the texts in times such as these. I am instead going to follow an excellent path by the wonderful speaker, preacher, and writer, Diana Butler Bass, who does an overview of today's readings rather than delving deeply into a parable that just might be a little too troubling. I'll tell you where I'm coming from, and maybe you share some of this. I believe it is difficult not to be affected by the things we hear in the news. Even though we are miles removed, we are still connected to the wars that go on in the world, especially the one now we hear about in Israel and Gaza. It's also true that people who work in mental health talk about secondary trauma. You don't even have to be where the bombs are falling to experience some level of trauma. I'd like to be mindful of that today in the sermon that I will be presenting. Now, if you really have your heart set on a deeper exploration of the parable of the wedding banquet and the guy who breaks the dress code, Bob has kindly put a written text on the website. So you could go there and read that, and you may find that helpful. But I do feel that I would like to go in a different direction today. So I'm going to ask your indulgence as we do that. So the path will be an overview of the four lessons, and looking particularly at a couple of words in the 23rd Psalm. So, nobody has bolted for the exits, so I guess we, um, we can continue. according to St. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. Once more, 
Jesus spoke to the religious leaders in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to call those whom had been invited to the banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it. And they went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent his troops to destroy those murderers, and he burned their city. And then he said to the slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets, and invite everyone you find into the wedding banquet. The servants went out into the streets, and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed there was someone not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen. The Gospel of our Lord. Won't you be seated? Grace and peace to you. From a God of abundant and steadfast love, Jesus who embodies that self-giving love and the Spirit who brings us together to bear witness to a loving and a just God. Where to start? What's a preacher to do? Well, as noted, I'm going to follow an excellent pattern of a bit of an overview of each reading and spending particular time with the psalm. I do need to take a whack at what a parable is, though, and what it's not. Because I think most of us are probably pretty rattled by all the goings-on in the world. We've seen the news reports, we've read, and I think we are, to a degree, traumatized. Back when I was a little shaver, the news came on twice in the evening. Now it is everywhere, always, all the time. That has to have an effect, doesn't it? I find myself identifying with the caption of a cartoon from the New Yorker magazine where one comments to another, my need to be informed is at severe odds with my need to stay sane. We can't hide from any of this. But still, it's everywhere. 
And how do we hold center? Maybe a quick production note. I notice I am already flying pillar to post internally, so I hope I don't lose myself and you along the way. But a production note would be that there is a statement that has been prepared by our denomination along with prayers. You will find that online and you will also find a printed copy uh, that Jennifer has prepared for us. So thank you for, for doing that for us. So that's some of the world context. Finding our center is a bit tricky when you hear a gospel reading like the one that we heard today. That's why I'm not going to tell you what it says, but I'm going to remind you of some lenses you can apply as you read it and ponder it yourself, maybe on a day when things aren't so raw. We confuse parables with fables. Those are the ones that are straightforward and give us a code of conduct. Do this, don't do that. Don't drive like my brother, behave yourself. Parables are different than that. And they're also different than, say, an allegory. Okay, an English teacher perked up, but the rest of us are, oh, what, what? <laughs> Where one thing stands for another. Oh, does that mean that the king means God and the robe means grace? And that breaks down in an awful hurry. Parables are designed to do something else, to scandalize us and to jar us into the direction of God's quixotic grace. I think I'm going to leave the parable right there. But even the other readings are a mixed bag. Oh, I love the one about the feast and the wine and the sumptuous food. And then I'm going to wreck it, Ralph, by telling you that that was written at a time that the people of Israel had been punted into exile and forced into deportation. And yet Isaiah had this vision that God was going to put things back together. And one of my favorite letters of Paul, and sometimes Paul and I have massive disagreements about a lot of things, but I like his letter to the people of Philippi when he says rejoice. And again, I say rejoice and keep your mind on the things that are building you up. Do you know where he wrote that letter? It wasn't at Black Sheep as he nursed a flat white coffee, but he was in jail at the time. And those two ladies whose names I'm not quite sure how to say in ways they would like me to say them, Yodia and Syntyche, their personal conflict was such that it was affecting the entire church community. And Paul wanted to intervene and to ask for some help in that regard. To help us all remember, keep the main thing, the main thing. So do you see where I'm headed with all of this? Such a mixed lot, even in rejoicing. I go back to some words from Brother David Steindl Rost, who says that happiness or true joy, he says, 
is happiness not just at the good things that happen. Maybe that's what Paul is driving at. Maybe that's what the prophet is inviting us to envision. And that brings us to the psalm. Have you heard that one before? New to anybody? Oh, I'm playing with you. (laughs) Of course we've heard it. It's probably on needlepoint in some homes. It's on the walls. We preach it at funerals. And I think the reason we preach it at funerals is not just because it's familiar and comforting, but because it's real. It takes us into the valley of the shadow of death. But it doesn't say that the valley is the only place. But it does say that even when we are there, God shows up with healing, with comfort, with protection. I have to thank a colleague of mine, Pastor Mark, who did some wonderful work with the Psalms years back. He was my neighbor in a parish. And he taught us that those last words of the Psalm lose a little bit in translation until you unpack a couple of words. Surely really means ultimately when it's all said and done. In the midst of all of this, God's goodness and God's mercy, they don't follow us necessarily, but it clings to us. It chases us. It hounds us and pursues us and cannot be shaken. So put that together if you like. When the world goes to smash, Halifax in a handbasket, if you like. God's goodness and mercy pursue us and cling to our lives. I'm reluctant to tell people what to think. I I hope that I don't. I hope instead that maybe we can provide some potential lenses or things that are useful as you do your own processing of grief and your own thinking about the ways things are going in the world and where God is in all of that. I am going to put out three propositions today. Luther, he could do 95. I'm I'm lucky if I can give you three, and they may be subject to debate, but here they are. The first is, God doesn't wait for the perfect world before God shows up. It's in the mess that God shows up, in the valley of the shadow of death. The second proposition, much like the first, is that when God shows up, God brings healing, steadfast love, and hope into places that are truly battered and broken. 
in a world not unlike the one we're in. The third proposition I've already hinted at, that when Jesus speaks of the rule and realm of God, he invokes the prophetic vision of Isaiah that there will come a time when there will be a feast, when all things will be set right. And here's the weirdness of all that. It's already, and it's not yet. And in the middle of that confusion and that uncertainty and that where are we really-ness, once again, that's where God shows up. I give thanks for the strength and resilience you carry the faith that you bear, and the witness you are. Even in gathering this morning, when it would have been a lot easier to pull the covers over your head, or maybe just to stay home and scroll through cute cat pictures, which is a stronger temptation than you might think. <laughs> and to you, I say, may God bless you and keep you, even as you seek to be informed strive to say same.